0: Good morning. Whoa. When you're hot, you're hot. (laughs) This is the first lesson in our series in uh, the Thessalonian Epistles. And uh, in typical form, I have chosen to change my title after I did my PowerPoint. Uh, I had the title, uh, Why the Church at Thessalonica and not Berea. And uh, that's not a bad question. I'm not going to leave the question. I just don't want it to be the title. The title is going to be why I want to study Thessalonians. I, I remember there was a time when I was a student in college and I was taking uh, my compulsory education courses to become a school teacher. One of the teachers had the uh, boldness to... Uh, asked the students to take out a 5 by 7 card and to fill out all the reasons that you were taking the course and what you expected to get from it. And I, I gave him a flowery piece of stuff that just, it was so bad that my conscience bothered me. And so I went in to talk to the professor and I said, I have to tell you the truth. The reason I'm in this class is because somebody told me I had to be here. I don't really expect anything out of the class at all, but I'm just going to take it because it's part of what we have to do. Now, that's pretty low expectations, but I want to tell you, that professor in that class fully met all of my expectations. (laughs) I actually took my checkbook, balanced my check, and, and, and did all those kinds of things back in the back of the class. It was not one of the uh, high points, I guess, of my educational career, and somehow I I guess I survived without it. I would hope that our expectations and our motivations are a little higher than that when we come to the Thessalonian epistles. And I want us to think about some of the reasons why we should be studying uh, these epistles, and I think the way to go about that is to address Uh, the history of these churches, and I'm thinking particularly of the church of Thessalonica and the church at Berea, as we see the founding of those churches described in Acts chapter 17 in the text that was read, and then that we compare Luke's account of the birth of those churches with what we know of those churches from the epistles, and in particular what we know about Thessalonica from the Thessalonian epistles that Paul has written. And in that mode, we will address the question that has always kind of bothered me as, as I've read both the account in Acts chapter 17 and the accounts in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. I come away from that text in Acts Expecting very little of Thessalonica. It was like that education class. <laughs> you know, you look at it, you've got you've got um you know a few Jews who come to faith, you have lots of Gentiles, but a few Jews, and, and then you have this huge Jewish revolt that takes place, and the Thessalonican Jews become the center of opposition. Uh, that now will follow Paul to Berea and cause trouble there as well. So I come away from this text seeing Paul making a midnight escape, uh, seeing him having to leave before he really would have preferred to leave, and seeing him in Thessalonians... Basically saying, I had really great concerns and I was very eager to visit you because frankly, I I think I left prematurely. I was forced to leave prematurely. So my hopes for Thessalonica are not particularly great. But when I read on in in Acts chapter 17, I come to the account of the Bereans. And these are more noble-minded. And these Bereans, many of the Jews... In Berea, come to faith as well as a number of the Gentiles as well, and it says that they are more noble. Here are Jews who who have a, a great confidence in the authority of Scripture, and and they they also um, have a, a, a high enough regard for Scripture. They're not going to buy wholesale whatever anybody says, including Paul, and so they're going to carefully weigh that. And I come away saying, and don't we all? You know, we say, don't we want to be Berean Christians? And so we say, yes, yes, these are my kind of people. And so I expect little from Thessalonica. I expect much from Berea. But there is no first Bereans and second Bereans. And in fact, Berea just kind of disappears. Uh, in the New Testament epistles, It just, it's just gone. And here's the Thessalonians, who I had low expectations of, and I read this glowing report from Paul in 1 Thessalonians, and I say to myself, what's this about? Why have I got this change to where we have a great thing said about the Thessalonians, and and yet nothing seems to be said in follow-up about the Bereans? My initial impression was to say, there must be something wrong with the Bereans. But I'm not so sure that's true, and I'll come back to my reason for that in a minute. So what I want to do is I want to look at uh, the history of the Thessalonian church, the birth of the church at Thessalonica and Berea, and then I want to compare that with what we know from Thessalonians, uh, and then ask ourselves the question, what is it that we need to gain from the Thessalonian epistles? And I might even put in parentheses that Luke didn't tell us in Acts. What is it that Luke didn't tell us in Acts that we needed to hear? And we read it in First and Second Thessalonians. So let's talk about Paul's first two missionary journeys. Now I'm going to throw a little curve in my presentation and I'm going to ask that we go to my map, Don. First map, oh goody technology prevails let's see how far i get with this and my laser pointer here is the first missionary journey as you know it starts at antioch and remember there are two antiochs there is pisidian antioch up to the north and the west and then there is the syrian antioch uh, which is where the church was uh, founded you remember and where paul and and barnabas left and and went out on their first missionary journey So Paul and Barnabas leave on their journey. They go to Cyprus. And then after Cyprus, they'll go to uh, Pamphylia. And Perga is that place, that seaport where John Mark decides that things are a little too rough. And they really haven't gotten bad yet. But they're too rough. And he's going to head back for Jerusalem. So they go from Perga up to Pisidian Antioch. Then over to Iconium. And then Lystra. You remember what Lystra is? That's the city where they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as, as though, or Paul and uh, Barnabas as as though they were gods. And then they will, uh, they'll go on and stone them and leave them for dead. And then Paul gets up and instead of, of going back home, goes over to Derby, then reverses and follows on back and comes back and they go back to, uh, Th- their a, a destination, and will report to the church uh, as as what has taken place there, so that 's the first uh, missionary journey now let 's move to the second one. Second missionary journey is uh, is going to be different because uh, we 've got to start with the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter fifteen when Paul and Barnabas return, they give account of the salvation of the, uh, of the Gentiles, and that creates concern on the part of Jewish believers, and their, their, their concern is that somehow they're flooding, uh, their, the church, so to speak, with these, um, uh, neophytes and, and pagans, and so they want to put them under the law. They want them to be circumcised, and then they want them to keep the law. That leads to the Jerusalem Council. The Council's decision is, we could not, as Jews, fulfill the requirements of the law. We're not going to impose it on Gentiles, and so there were a few restrictions that were placed on the Gentiles for the sake of fellowship. And then the Jerusalem Council decided that they wanted to send not only a letter, but they wanted to send Paul and, and, and Barnabas and two others uh, to to give the message and report to these churches that had been founded to make it very clear that that they were not to be placed under the law and to keep all of the requirements of the law. So the next missionary journey is really purposing to go back to those churches that had been visited, especially uh, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra Derby and and we would see of course a uh, Cyprus stem, uh below and and uh and 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 so they were going to make that trip. The problem was that Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along, who had bailed out on the first missionary journey. And Paul strongly disagreed and said, no, he cannot come. So you remember that what happens is that uh, John Mark goes with Barnabas, and they'll go back and follow that first part of the, of the first missionary journey route while Paul is going to go on. So instead of taking the, the, the route they did at first, Paul's now going to go by land. And he's going to go up to Derby, to Lystra. Lystra is where he will he will meet Timothy, and Timothy will be added to the missionary team. Uh so it'll be Paul and Silas and and uh, Timothy and when we get up to Troas it will then Luke will join as well so they go to uh, the very place where Paul was was uh, stoned and left for dead and then to Iconium and then up to Antioch in Pisidia that's where they had some real difficulties and some real decisions that had to be made because when they get to in Antioch in effect they have to decide are they just going to return back to Antioch just loop back, or are they going to go somewhere else? The options were to go over here to Colossae, which would be about here, and over to Asia and, and to Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit forbade them to go. We don't know how, but they were prevented from going there. And then the option was, okay, well, then let's go up north to Bithynia, and again... The Holy Spirit prevented them from going there and proclaiming the gospel. So there was really only one way to go, either back or forward. And they go on up to Troas. And now they're on the brink, of course, of a whole new adventure. And it seems to me that nobody really expected that the gospel was going to go this far. But that's the way the Spirit of God led them. So they, uh, when they're at Troas, that's the point at which Paul receives the Macedonian vision. Some people have said that they thought the Macedonian was was uh, Luke, uh, and and others have suggested other guys. We don't know, but we do know he looked like a Macedonian, and and uh, and so Paul and those with him decided that God was leading them. Uh, to uh, Macedonia to proclaim the gospel. And it's at this point now in Troas that we move to what's called the we section rather than the they. And so we assume now that Luke is has somehow joined at Troas and will go with them to Philippi and then apparently stays at Philippi when Paul and, and uh, Silas and the others uh, go their way. Okay, let's move to uh, map three if we can. Now, we're just taking, uh, picking up uh, up here at Troas uh, where they've come from Pisidian Antioch and they've come to Troas and received the Macedonian vision. It's about 125 miles, I'm told, from there to Neapolis. Neapolis is the port city there and Philippi would be about 10 miles inland uh, from there. And this is what's noticed called the Ignatian Way. It's the major sort of freeway that would go from Rome to Constantinople. And, and so it was a major city. And, of course, the ports there would, would also be uh, major factors uh, as well, such as at Thessalonica. So here they are now at Philippi. And this is where we hear of, of Paul and the party encountering three particular uh, individuals. One, Lydia, where she is there at the place for prayer. And as you know, the Lord opens Lydia's heart to respond to the things that are spoken by Paul. And then she asks them to come stay with her. We meet the fortune teller, the the young uh, girl who is demon possessed and is able to tell fortunes and uh, tell the future. And she speaks rightly about Paul and about those with him, that they have come to represent God and to proclaim the, the true gospel. Paul finally has enough of that. Apparently, it goes on for days. He cast the demon out of the girl, and you can imagine the small business administration is now up in arms because the economy has gone south for those who owned this young woman. So they then bring charges against Paul, and, and I want to just remind you of those charges in Acts 16, and verse um, 20 and 21 in particular. They brought them to their chief magistrate, and they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. So they're playing off of anti-Jewish prejudice, and they're playing off of this this possibility that these Jews are actually advocating sedition. And so they're trying to use the law, as it were, to to punish and to restrict Paul from proclaiming the gospel. And that's a charge which will be picked up again and again until Acts chapter 18. There's an interesting, we might call it, Supreme Court decision that's going to turn those things around. So that leads to Paul and and Silas being arrested, beaten, contrary to Roman law, and then thrown in the prison, and you have the the earthquake, prison doors are all opened, and you remember none of the prisoners leave, including Paul and Silas. The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He and his household come to faith, and then uh, the next morning... Uh, the the magistrates send their their uh, officials and they say, "Oh, by the way, you you're free to go now." That's a point at which Paul is really going to get on his his legal um, horse because it is absolutely critical that this charge not stand. We I think we need to really in our day and time we really need to get our arms around this. We need to be people who obey the law. Where we can, and that's in most places. We need to be people who are obedient to the law so that when we are accused of not obeying the law, the law can be used to defend the proclamation of the gospel. And I think we're going to see that more and more. There, you know, there are certain, uh, groups now, Christian groups, that are actually doing, uh, lawsuits in order to protect the proclamation of the gospel. And so uh, the law is used and Paul basically says you broke the law, we're not leaving quietly, we're leaving with you escorting us out because we want it clearly noted. We have the right to meet. So he doesn't just leave town, they go and they gather as a group of believers and when Paul is finished then they leave town. That really sends a message to the authorities, they'd better behave themselves and not mess with Roman citizens and that of course helps the proclamation of the of the gospel so after they leave uh, Philippi then they go across and you'll notice that they uh, they they come through Amphipolis and then Apollonia, apparently passing through those until they get to Thessalonica. Beautiful, beautiful city, beautiful port, a lot of commerce that goes through there. And, and this uh, city was, was obviously a famous and, and a well-known uh, city, and it was the capital of the province of Macedonia. It was about a hundred miles from Philippi as you went along the Via uh, Ignacia. Paul is at the synagogue, we're told, for three Sabbaths. Now, I think, did I put an asterisk there? I did. Three Sabbaths, I think we need to be careful that we don't conclude that Paul was only there for three weeks. What it's telling us is that Paul went to the synagogue on three consecutive Sabbaths, as I understand it, and then... It would appear, as happens elsewhere, that he begins to localize his ministry somewhere else. And so when it speaks about those three Sabbaths, I don't think it's just saying he was only there three weeks. I think most students of Scripture would agree he's there for somewhat longer uh, than that. And the three weeks are a focus on that Jewish aspect of Jewish evangelism. Paul didn't usually last too long in a synagogue. I mean, think about it. Uh, You know, my guess is he had a kind of a three-part system. And and he basically laid out the Old Testament scriptures and said, Look, here's what what our scriptures say about the coming of Messiah. And then he says, Look, here is the story about Jesus. And what do you know? They perfectly overlap. And then he talks about the rejection of Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection and says, probably in his third message, okay, that was prophesied as well and his resurrection was, was anticipated by Old Testament prophecy. Therefore, Jesus is the Jews' promised Messiah and we must believe in him for salvation. That's when everything really starts to come apart. Some believe... Some don't believe, as, as you know, and so we see the results of, of Paul's, uh, mission there in chapter 17 and verse 4. Some Jews, apparently not a great number of them, a great multitude of God-fearing Gentiles. Now remember, those would be Gentiles who have joined and associated themselves with Judaism, who would come to the synagogue, but were not apparently circumcised and full-fledged Jews, but those who sought God through Judaism and a number of leading women. Uh, And and so what you see is that you have, in a sense, the Jews have been outnumbered, convert-wise. They have been outnumbered by these Gentiles, and now you've got this large group of people not following them, not following their rabbis, not following their system, but following Paul. And here these influential women apparently are now going to give a status to Paul and the gospel message. And you remember from Romans 11 that it says that God goes to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Well, it works. And it works here. So it's prompted by jealousy. That uh, that now they begin to react. By the way, I put Aristarchus and Secundus there in brackets because here are two people from Thessalonica who will become associates of Paul, and they are mentioned later. And I would just assume that they may be two of those who came to faith as a result of Paul's preaching. So, out of the Jewish jealousy, Jason is is uh, Jason's house is is effect raided. And it just so happens that Paul and Silas were not there. Who knows where they were, but they weren't there. And so they drag Jason before the magistrates and they make this accusation again, an accusation of being Jewish, preaching sedition, uh, talking against Rome. And so uh, there is a, a bond that is posted and uh, And they have Paul make his midnight uh, journey out of the town and to uh, berea that 's the the story of how the gospel, according to Luke, came to thessalonica now let 's take a look at how the gospel came to Berea. Berea is fifty miles uh, southwest of Thessalonica. It departs from the Ignatian Way. So the Ignatian Way, the main thoroughfare, is going to go up, and it's going to come to come down, and so it's kind of a little bit—I don't want to say backwoods—but it's a little bit of an out-of-the-way place where you wouldn't have uh, necessarily the, the influx and and uh, of people and uh, that you would in one of the major cities like Thessalonica. Nevertheless, it had a synagogue. And Paul quickly goes there and begins to proclaim the gospel. Oh, does anybody have an old King James Version, by the way? Oh, thank you, Emil. What read that read the, the words, because I forgot to write them down, when it talks about um, the men from the marketplace in seventeen five, how does he describe how does the, the King James Version describe them? I love that. I love that. Uh, Lewd fellows of the baser sort. I don't know why, but that just grabs me. Uh, There's one, one of those instances where the King James just really gets it right. And and uh, I don't think modern translations quite capture that. Okay, so in contrast to these lewd fellows of the baser sort, we come now to Berea. And these are people who are more noble-minded. Here are people who have a different perspective, a different response. They are people who highly regard the Scriptures. They are listening carefully to what is being said, But they are not buying it wholesale and they are going back home looking at the scriptures to see, is this really true? So these people are highly commended uh, for their response, these Jews. And you notice now in this instance, it says not a few as we have in Thessalonica. Many Jews believed as well as many Greek men and and a number of prominent Greek women. So this is a different group of people. And and I guess I would say, if if I were taking a a survey uh, for a church planter, and and I had to make a choice, where would I choose to plant a church? Would I go to Thessalonica, where there are lewd men of the baser sort? (laughs) Or would I go to Berea, where there's noble-minded people? Where there are few Jews who believe or where many Jews believe. Berea looks like the winning place to me. And yet those tables are going to be turned upside down in, in my opinion as time will go on. So yeah, the opposition. Now it arrives from Thessalonica, not from Jews within Berea, but from Jews outside. Those same Thessalonican Jews are now on Paul's trail opposing the gospel which he is preaching. And I think they would have done exactly the same tactic, except that when they start to stir up trouble, they get Paul out of town uh, quickly. And notice again uh, that Paul leaves town, but Silas and Timothy remain behind. There was something particularly volatile about Paul, wasn't there? He just, I mean, he was, he was trouble. Uh, in, in a good sense. But that guy, when he went to the synagogue, man, he was not soft on the message. And somehow Silas and Timothy could remain behind. No doubt their ministry was to those who were believers and was not maybe the front line apologetic ministry that Paul had had. But nevertheless, he leaves. He goes to Athens and then he will go to Corinth. And we assume that that is where the... Uh, first epistle and probably the second as well, epistle to the Thessalonians, were written uh, by Paul. Now, let's talk about the uh, things that I think I have learned from Luke's account. This may sound strange, but here's, here's some connections that I made. One, I think I understand better why Paul encouraged people to remain single. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7? I encourage you, in effect, he says, to be as even as I. And he talks about undistracted devotion. When you look at what Paul went through at Philippi, at Thessalonica, and so on, would you not agree with me that, you know, I mean, I think about myself. If I went there with my wife and my five daughters, (laughs) it wouldn't be good, would it? And you can see why Paul is saying for that kind of ministry in that particular place and time, that wasn't a great place to be leading along a wife and children. It's one thing to take the stripes on your own back. It's another thing to lead your family into an occasion where they're going to get some of the heat of the action as well. So it makes sense to me as I look at this account at how rough it was. And let's not forget the first missionary journey where Paul is stoned and left for dead. This was really tough ministry. It also helps me understand why John Mark bailed out. But beyond that, I understand why Paul didn't want him on that second missionary journey. Here's a guy who had failed and he knew that tough times were ahead for him. It was too soon for John Mark to get back into the battle with that level of intensity. Will Paul later say, send him to me for he's profitable? Absolutely. But he understood that you don't take people who have not only are unproven, but people who have actually failed into an immediate situation of difficulty in the level of intensity that he faced. I learned about open and closed doors. I just love the account of what takes place at Pisidian Antioch when Paul is trying to figure out where do we go next. He's not going to go back down to Cyprus because that's already been taken care of by Barnabas and and, and John Mark. So that's out of the picture. Where does he go? He doesn't, he's not led to Colossae and to Ephesus. And remember, he won't get there for some time. He's going to pass through and say, if the Lord leads, I'll come. It's interesting to me that every good thing that happened evangelistically didn't rest on Paul's shoulders. And so somehow God is opening the door for other people to minister in those ways. And so basically the Spirit says, no, I don't know how he said it, but it was clear that the Spirit was closing that door. You try to go north into Bithynia, and again, God says, no. The thing I'm trying to say is this. We, I think, I fear that we have become soft in our missionary zeal and that we use persecution as the barometer or as the pointer as to whether or not we should go into difficult places. It's John Piper who I think said it as well as anybody I know. There are no closed doors for people who are willing to die for their faith and proclaiming it amongst places where they're not welcome. Is that not true? No closed doors if you're willing to die. The closed doors are when it starts getting tough. And, and just as I've observed from a distance, and I've never been on the front lines in this, so I'm not speaking out of any um, position of, of honor in this at all. But as I've observed in some parts of the world, when it starts getting tough, the missionaries are the first to go. And, and, and I'm not saying that's altogether wrong. I'm saying you got to raise some flags and and say, is that really the, the benchmark? Is that really the standard for whether or not you stay? So to press it further, when the door opens and God gives the vision to come over to Macedonia, it wasn't easy in Philippi, was it? You get you get beaten in Philippi, thrown into prison. You know he could have, in effect, if God had not acted. He could have been there in and, and, and Silas for a long time, and you get the treatment that he receives in Thessalonica and so on. What I'm saying is, closed doors are or, or, no, doors of persecution and opposition are really open doors for Luke. What he does not tell us is he does not tell us Paul tried to go to Asia and he found persecution. He tried to go to Bithynia and he found persecution. So finally he finds a place where he's welcome. No, it says the Spirit told him not to go. But where the Spirit did tell him to go was a place of difficulty and opposition and persecution. So what I'm trying to say is what I learned from this, what I learned from Luke's account is places of persecution may well be open doors. They may not. But they may well be. But just the fact that there is opposition and persecution is not proof that God's people ought not to be there with the message of the gospel. The times of the Gentiles draw near. When you're reading the book of Acts, you've got to remember that the conclusion for Luke in Acts 28 is Paul getting all the way to Rome with the good news of the gospel proclaiming it to those who are Jews there and getting the same mixed response that he gets. And then he cites Isaiah 6 and basically says, the gospel has now gone, in a sense, to Israel. It has gone out, it has gone to the Jews, and they have rejected it. Now, he says, we're going to the Gentiles. And there is that decisive turn, I think, where the times of the Gentiles begins at the end of Acts. Many things will continue, but there's a sense in which the door closes. And while the account is never given in the scriptures of the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it, it's very clear that those days are soon to come and, and uh, the door will be shut for a time with Israel and open amongst the Gentiles. Paul's synagogue method. I was thinking about the method, and we see it in Acts uh, chapter uh, 13 when Paul is preaching on his first missionary journey. Pretty full account, and then you get uh, another uh, reference to it in chapter 17 where it says that according to his uh, custom, he goes to the synagogue. I don't want to say that Paul has a canned message, but I think he has a prepared script And I I have to say to you, this is probably more of a rebuke to me than it is to you because I tend to be more a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of person uh, than, than one who's got everything all mapped out. But it seems to me that when Paul went to the synagogue, he had a presentation pretty clearly in mind. Now, he could depart from that. He could modify it. He could uh, embellish or add to it if he chose to. But I think he had a message. And and the thing that's, that I've been asking myself from this is, it, shouldn't we have, in a sense, a gospel message that's our custom? Shouldn't we have a message that we've thought through so that when we come and, and, and we encounter people in this postmodern world, we basically have a message that we can say to unbelievers, here's what the gospel says to you. Now, we can choose to depart from that, whatever, but I just wonder how many of us, including myself, fail to engage when the door is open because we really don't have a thought through presentation to address the critical issues. Anyway, I see that in Paul, and Luke makes a point of it, I think. The opposition of unbelief, how unbelievers seek to use the government's power to suppress Christianity and oppose the gospel. I see that in Acts uh, chapter 16 at Philippi, Acts 17 at Thessalonica, and also at Berea, had it gone that far. And it's going to happen again in Acts chapter 18 at Corinth, remember? Where they're they're going to try and get Paul thrown out of town, thrown into jail, at least silenced, because what he's doing is Jewish and it's seditious. It's seeking to overthrow Roman rule. So that you have uh, in Acts chapter eighteen, uh, when they're uh, when Paul is brought before Gallio, uh, they say this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Same charge. And, and this is like a Supreme Court decision in my mind. And Gallio is just fed up with these guys. He is just fed up. He knows who the troublemakers are. And so Paul is about to open his mouth in verse 14 of chapter 18. And Gallio says to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. I am sick and tired of the trouble you've caused me. And so he basically throws it out of court and 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 looks on passively while they whoop on the guys that brought the charges. Now that is a very significant decision that once again is going to say Christianity is a legitimate part of Judaism and it is not outside of the protection of Roman law. And I say again, I think we may need to come to the place where that becomes a legal issue that has to be fought out and is, in fact, to this day. Comparing Thessalonians with Luke. What's unique about the books of Thessalonians? One of the things that I find interesting is when he starts out, he starts out, you know, I, we thank God for every one of you. And, and, and in a sense, you're. <laughs> if you're used to Paul's epistles, you're saying, oh, yeah, here he goes again, right? I mean, you know, he kind of starts his epistles that way. And he usually gets over that in about two verses. This goes on for three chapters. Three chapters. He goes down memory lane talking about how he came to them and how God worked in miraculous ways to underscore this message and to bring them to faith. Uh, in spite of this opposition. Now folks, think about this. Thessalonica. You've, <laughs> Paul, I don't know what all he looked like after he had been left for dead on his first missionary journey, but my guess is he may have been limping some from whatever, what, the residue of what was left with that. He's just come from Philippi. He's been, he's been whipped and beaten and now he's turned loose and he passes through these cities, and now he shows up in 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 Thessalonica. This guy is no prize. Remember when it speaks about Jesus in Isaiah 53? He has no form or comeliness that we would be drawn to him. Jesus didn't look really, really sharp so that people were drawn in that physical sense. And Paul didn't look particularly hot. And what I'm saying is, when you come battered and bruised, and you preach a gospel which is humanly not flattering, you're sinners, you need to trust in Jesus and all that, and, and you have all the scars of your reception at the last place you preached, w- wouldn't you agree? Th- that's not exactly the the, the, the smiley, uh, televangelist, uh, uh, perfectly dressed, you know, smooth, Mr. Cool presentation This guy is battered and bruised and he says, I'm bringing you the message of Jesus. And by the way, if you trust in him, you will suffer like me. See, it's the power of God that's at work in him that gives great testimony and he's reminding them of all of those things that that made the gospel powerful in their lives. Okay. Oh, uh, also notice that that he talks about things they already knew about. Fee counted them up. I did not, but I had circled them. He'll say, "As you know, or you recall," Fee says at least eleven times in First Thessalonians. He makes reference to something as something they already knew. Paul is not telling them something new as much as he is speaking again and reminding them of something that isn't new to them, that they've already heard before. Sometimes I think, especially preachers, we get tempted to tell people new things when the reality is we're not trying, we're not supposed to be inventors that come and find some new thing. We're those who ought to proclaim the same truths because we need to hear them again and again. Like the truths related to the death of our Lord that we celebrate every Sunday. The other thing you see in the Thessalonian epistles is his great affection for the Thessalonians. Do you not? He loved those people. He wants to come back to them. He's left them in his mind sooner than he would like to have left. He wants to go back. He's concerned about their spiritual health and well being. And so he speaks over and over about the affection that he has. He speaks of himself as, as a nursing mother and as a caring father. I I was tempted to put in my notes. I think I dropped it out. Does Paul have, has Paul found his feminine side? (laughs) But the reality is he has, he is as tough as a drill sergeant. Is he not? This guy is tougher than a boot. And yet, when he speaks about his love and affection, he speaks about fatherly love and motherly love and care for them. And, and I don't see that. I don't mean that to, to, to in any way denigrate what Lucas said. I don't see the tenderness in Acts that I see in Thessalonians. And I think we need the balance. We need most of us. I need to be tougher than I am. But many of us need to be more tender as well and to have that affection that Paul uh, described. He also speaks about three main areas of application. I call it sanctified sex in, in chapter 4 verses 3 through 8, that, that, that their their sexual lives ought to be transformed by their sanctification in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and in those places that was especially apparent. Then I call it because I want to stay with S's. No sponging. These guys were mooches. And one of the things that you see is in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to start out by saying, when I was with you, I worked with my hands and I supported you. Now he can say in 2 Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work, neither does he eat. Don't you take care and and in a sense facilitate moochers. Christians need to be careful that they do the things that are their responsibility to do. And then, of course, the third area is the uh, second coming of our Lord and its implications. Now, what does that say to me as I think about coming to the book of Thessalonians, uh, the, the epistles of Thessalonians? What does it say to me? Why do I want to study first and second Thessalonians? First is, I want to, I want to learn from Paul the evangelist. I want to learn from him in terms of how he prepares his message in a way that addresses a group with great pointedness and accuracy. I don't think that I can say that that's characteristic of me, and most of us, I think we're a little too loosey-goosey and fly by the seat of our pants. But there's another element there. If I were left with the description of Paul and his evangelism in Acts chapter 17... In Thessalonica and Berea. I would have this impression that all he does is go into a crowded room, lay out this gospel and walk away. You know, sort of come listen and leave and he just preaches, drops his bomb and and moves on. That's the impression one would get if you had, if you had read only Acts. But what you see when you read 1 Thessalonians is this was a man who got down and dirty. He didn't just stand on a platform and present Jesus in the synagogue. He lived with these people and lived among them to where they knew him. They saw his motivations. They saw his care. And what I'm saying is it seems to me that that ought to be talking to us about how we win our our lost friends and neighbors to Christ. You can't do it at arm's reach. And Paul doesn't do it that way. So there's that public element of proclamation, but there's that private area that is clearly revealed in Thessalonians that I want to learn more about. Loving leadership from Paul, the servant leader. Here is a guy who has tremendous authority. But yet he, he describes himself as a father who cares for his children and as a mother who nurses her baby. Now that says to me that here is a really, a truly servant leader. And Paul's going to talk about his motivation and his dealings with uh, these Thessalonians. I need some of that too. Missionary methods from Paul the missionary. There are, there are times in Paul's life, as you know, where he is ministering, so to speak, full-time, supported by people. But this other dimension that there, that there aren't a lot of people signing up for is, is what I would call business as mission. Now, I don't know about the international tent-making business, but I, I'm really excited about some of the things that I'm hearing from my friends. Uh, uh, one of my friends was telling me about a man who had started a business or two in North Korea. Uh, And the purpose of that was to get the gospel there. And what I'm saying is Paul did what it took to get the gospel where it needed to go. If it was an occasion where him being supported was going to be a detriment, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, then he set it aside. If, for the sake of the gospel, being supported was the best way, then he went that way. But I, I see that we talk a lot about Paul's theology. We don't talk a lot about Paul's methodology when it comes to missions. And I want to think more about that personally. And then there's this whole issue of the power of the gospel in the face of persecution. Here's where I've come on this. Why did the church at Thessalonica strive, uh, thrive when the church at Berea just sort of vaporizes? It just sort of falls off the radar. My first inclination was to try and find something wrong with Berea and maybe something right with the Thessalonians. I mean, isn't that the way you kind of want to go? What did the Thessalonians do right that made this thing work? And that's what we ought to do too. There may be some of that. What was it that the Bereans did wrong? Well, I don't find anything that they did wrong. Try this on for size. Maybe it's not about the Thessalonians and the Bereans at all. Maybe it's about God demonstrating His greatness. That was our theme this morning. God demonstrating His greatness. Granted, remember 1 Corinthians? Not many wise, not many well-born, not many noble. God has chosen the weak things and the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He could have gone to those wonderful Jewish Bible students in Berea, and I am not, I am not berating them at all. He could have gone there and he could have made this wonderful church and held them up for all of us to look at and say, oh, they are really great people. And I can see how God would use them. It seems to me that God takes the most unlikely place and the most unlikely people, not a large number of Jews, but a small number, but a large number of Gentiles not people who, who were as, as well-informed, not people who had a nice, easy environment, but people who lived in the midst of a city where the Jewish opposition was so strong they would follow Paul 50 miles to stop his preaching. Maybe, maybe Thessalonians is really talking to me about the greatness of my God in the proclamation and the power of the gospel so that he can say, knowing, brothers, his choice of you. Not your choice of him, his choice of you. And then he talks about how when he came in in, this, in his condition from Philippi having been worked over, God took the message and powerfully reinforced that message to where it had the effect that it did when people realized and understood, if I believe this message, I will suffer. I think the deck, I think one of the things that Luke is doing is to stack the deck against Thessalonica. And we say, man, so long Thessalonica, you know, Paul had to leave early. It's just goodbye. And here's this growing, thriving church who is the model and, and the word of their acceptance of the gospel and their faith is going ahead of Paul to the places where he preaches. Who would have thought it? But I believe God is demonstrating his greatness to us. That's all the reason in the world for us to be studying Thessalonians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, these two epistles. Thank you for Paul. For his boldness, thank you for Timothy and Silas and Luke and those others who faithfully went along as a team proclaiming the gospel. As we look at our world today, we see some very unlikely places and some very unlikely people. Perhaps it is those places and those people who you, you have chosen to draw to yourself to manifest your power and glory. Help us, Father, not to look at opposition as a closed door necessarily. Perhaps it's the opportunity where you will display your power and your greatness. May you work in our lives to where the people in this town, here and places elsewhere, here as well, of what you have done through people who seem unlikely candidates for salvation and sanctification. If there's someone here this morning who has never trusted in the Lord Jesus. Help them to understand it is not about what we do, but it is about what Jesus has done. May they recognize their sin and their need of a Savior. May they trust in the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.